Before we start the episode, I want to talk about a new book that I have coming out. It's called What Belongs to Caesar. It's a collection of essays that deal with the relationship of the kingdom of God to the state, or government, and it falls within a tradition uh, that some call Christian anarchism. What is Christian anarchism? Well, I'm hoping to give some background on that in the series of interviews uh, that you're watching right now. Um, some of the people I'm talking to are Christians who want to strongly distinguish the kingdom of God from the state. Others are anarcho-capitalists uh, who want to minimize the violence that humans do to each other through government by doing away with the state, uh, but not necessarily Christians. And others are a little bit of both. Um, so I strongly encourage you to check out the works of these thinkers and also get a hold of my book, What Belongs to Caesar, uh, which will be out in March of 2022. Thank you and enjoy the show. Greetings, you are listening to and or watching Cantus Firmus, where my guest today is Christopher Borer. Uh, Christopher Borer, uh, you are the author of a new book, The Ethics of Anarcho-Capitalism. Uh, and before we get into what anarcho-capitalism is, can you tell me a little bit about your personal background? Uh, sure. So I grew up in New Jersey, then I lived in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and New York for a while. Uh, but now I'm based in Miami. Uh, I work as a mid-level tech executive at a Fortune 50 company. Uh, my background is mainly in robotics and artificial intelligence, but lately I've been doing a lot of web application development. So that's a little bit about me. Gotcha. So you're, you're kind of like a lower profile Elon Musk. A uh, much lower profile. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, OK, so to get into your book a little bit, I was kind of talking about this before we started recording. The book sounds very dry, and I bought the book because I, I don't mind dry books if it's on a subject that I'm interested in. It sounded very academic, the ethics of anarcho-capitalism. So there's three words already in there that are going to throw people off. Mm -hmm. um, and but what surprised me was um, how how readable the book was. Actually, I didn't even like, read it uh, visually. I, I listened to it on Audible, um, and I was able to, to really follow it and enjoy it and connect with it. And I think I heard you say this in another interview, um, that sometimes when you're reading uh, economic or philosophical works, people will use these kind of interesting examples to try to get their kind of their dry academic points home. And this book is pretty much all one big example. And so it's all of the kind of fun part of philosophy and, and, and um, uh, uh, economics, but not the kind of the painful stuff. Um, okay. so, so ethics, of course, has to do with uh, right and wrong behavior. Um, and what is anarcho-capitalism? Uh, I like to think of anarcho-capitalism as the purest form of libertarianism. Uh, libertarians believe that you should follow the non-aggression principle. It's basically a rule that says don't cause conflict. So that means no theft, no murder, and so on. Uh, in other words, live peacefully. Uh, you can do things that are bad, like eating junk food, but you shouldn't engage in activities that are evil, like slavery. Uh, and under anarcho-capitalism, everyone's expected to follow the non-aggression principle, no exceptions. Uh, and most social systems have something similar, you know, a rule like this for regular people, but they give an exception to the rulers. So if you have a king or a government, they don't have to follow the non-aggression principle. They get to steal via taxation or enslave people if they want soldiers to fight in their wars and so on. So even some libertarians think that government should have an exception to the non-aggression principle. Um, they, they think it's impossible to have private police or private courts. So 
And so they say, well, we have to have, um, the government has to have a monopoly on these kinds of services. Well, the only way to have a monopoly is to violate the non-aggression principle and use force. So government gets to do things that are evil because it's a necessary evil. Um, then they try to come up with mechanisms that will ensure that the government will only do evil things when it's absolutely necessary. You know, constitution, bill of rights, et cetera. And your listeners can decide for themselves whether they think government tends to constrain itself or expand its power over time. Um, but contrary to this, you know, anarcho-capitalists think that society can function without giving anyone an exception to the non-aggression principle. Uh, not only that, they think it'll work much better. You know, competition in television manufacturing leads to better and cheaper televisions every year. Uh, and the same thing would apply to private police and courts. You know, if you have competing police companies, the ones that provide the best protection would, you know, at the cheapest price will get the most customers and the ones that shoot your dog will go out of business. So there is another, uh, uh, you know, that's basically the ethical side of it. There's another side that I don't touch much on in the book, and that's the uh, cultural side. Um, you know, there's a culture around that many ANCAPs have around promoting increasing wealth and technology. You know, they want the world to be peaceful, but they also want everyone to be healthy and wealthy. Uh, so they uh, promote things like savings and um, you know, cooperation that leads to the kind of life that many people like to live. Uh, so from an ethical perspective, anarcho-capitalism is just pure libertarianism. From a cultural perspective, I'd say it's like a freedom-maximizing philosophy. So um, one thing that occurs to me, and, and it's something that uh, your book addressed that a lot of ANCAPs that I've read haven't really talked about, um, is so ANCAP meaning anarcho-capitalist. So, so uh, some people may have seen kind of the memes with the charts where you have uh, like the four different quadrants. Yeah, and on yeah, the bottom yeah. right, you have anarcho-capitalism. The bottom left, you have anarcho-communism. Um, and so in anarcho-communism, I think the idea is that if you get rid of the state, um, everything will ultimately be held in common um, because you're getting rid of this kind of coercive power. And when that happens, everybody will share everything. Uh, anarcho-capitalists go, well, no, not really. <laughs> because you can't, people are going to have property unless you force them not to. Um, and so, uh, but one thing that you talk about in the book that I thought was kind of interesting, because I said, as I said, a lot of ANCAPs don't really talk about it, is you do deal with this question of the commons a little bit, that there are certain things that could be held in common. I mean, anarcho-communists communists say everything is held in common. Anarcho-capitalists tend to almost talk like nothing. There could be no kind of public space. Um, but you discuss that idea a little bit. And Maybe before I ask you how, um, it would be uh, better to go into what I talked about earlier, how this is this book is one big example. And so um, could you maybe explain just a little bit of, of what that example is? Wh where do we start in the book and what's the, what's the basic premise that's being worked through? Oh, sure. So uh, I guess the general storyline of the book is that uh, you are stranded on a desert island and you've got to kind of figure things out on your own. And uh, over time, a few other characters show up. And when you have multiple people living together, sometimes things don't go perfectly and you've got to find a way to resolve conflicts. And resolving conflicts is what ethics is all about. So it kind of sets the stage for use, using different rules of libertarianism to resolve those conflicts. And so and it is, and is a, a second person. So you're, you're basically put right into the action uh, because the, that you language is used. And uh, so someone else shows up in the island, right, who is kind of amenable and friendly. And then there's a third person who shows up who's not so willing to go along um, <laughs> and, and, and work peacefully. Yeah. Um, 
so but then so on, on this and this kind of deserted island situation um you know people have their own private property they have their own huts their coconuts so on and so forth um so how how, how is it that you address the idea of common property and is there any uh, usefulness there when you kind of expand this out to a larger um um you know scenario outside of a desert island deserted island maybe into a, a country or, or a municipality something like that yeah um i think an old way of thinking about uh, libertarianism and the private property system is around stuff so you've got an apple or something and you own that thing um but as time has progressed people have come to a more nuanced stance around property and um, private ownership where you don't really own things you own the use of things so um, you know, two people might jointly own uh, a car and someone uses a commute during the day and one uses a commute at night or something like that. Or two people might buy a house jointly and own different pieces of it or uh, things like that. Um, so you can share things, you know, different parts of physical things. You can also share them temporally. Um, and uh, when you think about the commons, uh, you know, a common example is roads. Everyone says, you know, if you don't have government, who's going to control the roads and share the roads, make sure everyone can use roads and get places. Um, but the libertarian ethical system has a pretty straightforward solution to this, and that is, you know, you start using a pathway or a road, um, you start to, in a sense, own the right to use it in the way that you've been using it, as long as you're not causing conflict with other people. So if you go for a walk and then your neighbor goes for a walk and everything's peaceful, then you're both entitled to go for walks just like you have been. Um, it's only when, you know, maybe hundreds of people are trying to go for walks and it gets too crowded that you need to resolve those conflicts in different ways. Um, but the private property system has mechanisms for that. And ultimately that leads not to the idea that you should have some government that owns all the roads, um, but that roads can be owned privately by the people that were using them when they were not so busy and they can figure out how to, you know, distribute those rights either by selling them or giving them away or just sharing however they want. Yeah, I, 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 it was just so funny to me that I'd never really heard uh, any and ANCAP say just share it. <laughs> so, anyway, um, so um, you know, we were out the word capitalism, and um, it has been, I think, getting a pretty bad rap, um, especially if you're on social media or or watch MSNBC. Um, so, what to you is the utility of capitalism? Is it a good economic system? Do you think it's exploitative? Um, uh, when people, when people blame it for this kind of rising inflation and greed, people talk about late capitalism. What, 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 I mean, do you think of capitalism as a good thing or this sort of dying thing that's going to lead to something else? Oh yeah, that's, that's a lot to untangle. So what's the utility? Is it a good economic system? Is it exploitive? Let me, I'll try to touch on those. Uh, so personally, I think the biggest benefit of capitalism is that it makes everyone wealthier. Um, you know, most places around the world, people are much wealthier than their parents were and their grandparents were. That's not because they're smarter or harder working than their parents or grandparents. I think in many cases, the opposite is true. Uh, it's just because capitalism has allowed us to accumulate machines and resources that let us be more productive. So we accumulate wealth faster and faster with less work. So people used to have, work, have to work seven days a week just to feed their families. Now companies are talking about a four-day week, work week. Uh, that's only possible because of capitalism. And uh, you know, the more capitalist a society is, the faster it gains wealth. So if a society moves towards socialism or communism, it can become poor very quickly. Uh, if it goes you know, too far towards collectivism, things can kind of go from sad to horrific. Um, 
So is it a good economic system? Uh, I think so, but it's really, it depends on your personal moral system. You know, some people prefer equity over equality. Uh, and, you know, capitalism makes everyone richer, but it makes a few people super, super rich. And that makes some people jealous and angry. So to those people, capitalism might not be such a great economic system. Um, you know, there's another group of people who would probably consider capitalism to be bad, namely the ruling class. So those in charge of governments around the world. Uh, they probably want a little bit of capitalism uh, so that they can leach taxes for productive people. But unbridled capitalism would, by definition, put them out of a job. So for everyone else, I think capitalism is great. We're, you know, we're all working together. Every year we get new music and food and such, but it's not necessarily for everybody. And then you said, is it exploitative? You know, is it causing inflation? Um, yeah, I think in general, capitalism doesn't have exploitation at all. Uh, the theory is all interactions are voluntary. So you can't really exploit people under capitalism. You, know, you can't be forced to sell your home uh, like governments do with eminent domain. You can't be forced to work like they do with jury duty. <laughs> You know, exploiting people violates the non-aggression principle. So only entities that can that can really exploit others are governments or maybe corporations colluding with governments, things like that. You know, a purely, purely capitalist system would not have any governments to exploit people. Um, and inflation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You mentioned inflation. You know, that really only exists because of government monopolies on money production. If people were allowed to use whatever money they wanted, then inflationary monies would probably be pushed out of the market as people move their wealth to stable or even deflationary money. Well, and you kind of mentioned how, you know, through capitalism, we have all these technological advances that we didn't have previously. Not nearly, at least, uh, let's, how do I say this? We're, we weren't moving at nearly the, the pace <laughs> that we started moving until sort of capitalism began to take hold. Yeah. Um, and, and also things getting cheaper. And uh, I, I can sort of hear the, you know, kind of left-leaning person in my ear saying, uh, you know, um, well, that doesn't apply to things like housing, education, and medical care, and doesn't that just prove the, the benefits of capitalism? Okay, computers and TVs are getting cheaper, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but what about the things that we need uh, to live? Um, well, I mean, the most basic thing we need to live is food, and uh, you know, food is certainly more abundant than it's ever been. Uh, well, at least in capitalist countries, right? There's some countries that go the other way and food can be kind of scarce and it's sad and scary for those countries. Um, but there are certainly distortions in the market that happen that make it seem like capitalism is bad. But, uh, you know, most societies are kind of a mix of capitalism and, you know, a government system. And when government gets involved, they can do things that really mess up uh, the way the market should be functioning. So I think many people have heard of the housing crisis that happened you know, a decade ago. Uh, that's not because capitalism was producing too many houses. It's because the government stepped in and said, you know, home loans are going to be cheaper than they should be. So everyone goes out and buys homes. There's a big boom. A bubble cre is created and it pops and bad things happen. So um, I have not heard of any examples of capitalism really making people poor or making things less abundant. Uh, but maybe there are. I just haven't heard of them. That's a fair answer, I think. Um, yeah, because the, the examples you gave of things getting uh, cheaper and, and advancing more quickly are those areas where government tends to be less involved in, in uh, regulating them. Yeah. Um, so um, I was kind of curious about um, how the book came together in the sense of, um, was it always kind of supposed to be this thing that was kind of 
uh, easy to to follow and read, or did you set out to write something that was more like a tome? How, how did this? How did that start? <laughs> um, I guess I when I originally started writing about ethics, um, I was reading a lot of academic papers and you know thick academic books like we were talking about before, and so I tried to emulate that. So I wrote a few papers, I published them in journals, and no one really cared, right? Even you know, regular people don't like to read academic papers, and even academics don't really like to read them either. So you write something, nobody reads it, and then what happens? Not much. Um, so when I started thinking about writing a book, I thought, well, if, if you really want to, if I really want to have an impact and spread the ideas, then it's got to be easily digestible. And so I tried to think, you know, what's a good way for the average person, or maybe the average person who's interested in philosophy, to consume these ideas? And so kind of naturally landed on narrative nonfiction. Um, and like you said earlier, the examples are kind of usually the most compelling thing in economics and ethics. So I just tried to make them both chock full of those. And yeah, and I mean, which is not to say that there aren't um, the kind of complex ideas um, that are throughout the book, like um, you do talk about the non-aggression principle. Uh, which is the, the principle, the idea that it's always wrong to initiate aggression against someone else, and uh, praxeology, which is this uh, this idea that comes from Ludwig von Mises, uh, who's an economist. And so, uh, how do you make uh, praxeology seem um, accessible to a mainstream audience? <laughs> Great question. Um, I think you know, praxeology is somewhat relatable in a sense. It's the study of purposeful behavior, and pur purposeful behavior is something that everyone can understand if you explain it in a certain way. You, know, you, you eat an apple, you eat an apple because you're hungry. You sit down when you're tired, and so people can understand. You know, you've got these things you want to do, and you you take action because of your desires, and you can give very simple examples. Um, and that's not always the case. And many books on, that use praxeology. Um, the authors go very deep and they go into complex and you know kind of wonderful ideas about human behavior and it's not easy to grasp. So uh, I guess just like you start kids with simple mathematics, um, I only touched on the most basic uses of praxeology. And fortunately, you only need a little bit of it to get started in ethics. Um, so it's it's just enough. Uh, but it, you know, if, if you have, if some of your listeners are very interested in praxeology, there are there are books that go into much more advanced ideas, both in ethics and economics. Um, you know, Mises wrote a great book called Human Action. Uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe's got a great book called Economics and Ethics of Private Property. Uh, they're more like textbooks, though, so I wouldn't, uh, I, I don't want people to go in expecting fun adventure stories. It's more like the dry academic textbook. Yeah, what I would actually probably encourage people to do is start with something like your book, and if they're interested at that point, then to, then to move forward, because I think you do really do a great job of, of getting these ideas started. And I mentioned I listened to the audiobook, and I loved the audiobook a lot. Um, so as I recall, I mean, a lot of libertarians would sort of ground their, their ethical system, or the ethical part of their system at least, on the non-aggression principle. And as, if I recall in the book, I think you kind of argue that praxeology, praxeology is a better sense. Am I, am I mistaken about that? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's basically right. So my main argument is that, uh, the non-aggression principle should be defined using praxeology because if, okay. um, many, you know, historically in the you know, 20th century, when libertarianism was kind of taking off, uh, people tried to define it using 
physical terms. Like I own this thing or I own the property that's surrounded by this fence. And people were pretty you know, focused on physical boundaries and boundary crossing. And how do you solve an ethical problem when you're trying to say, you know, he, his hand hit my skin and it passed the border of my body or got too close. So I was afraid. Um, and for many things, you can kind of, you can figure it out using physics, so to speak. So like I hit you, you hit me. Um, but for more complicated ethical problems, uh, you really need to understand what people are thinking when they're acting. Uh, so, for example, you can commit a crime without ever hitting anybody or crossing any boundaries, right? You could just say something to somebody that confuses them or tricks them into doing something else to somebody, a third person. And even though I never crossed any boundaries or violated any you know, physical uh, dimensions, I've done something that has then led to a, a conflict or a crime. Um, so like fraud is an example, right? You never, you don't have to hit anybody to commit fraud, but you can still do something that's unethical. And, and I think the, the, the significance is that praxeology takes into account actions and motives. And so that helps us to kind of d determine whether the, the NAP, the non-aggression principle, has been violated or not based on what action was performed and what the motive behind it was. Is that, is that kind of a fair assessment? Exactly. And you need to know what's going on in people's head, both if they're the purported aggressor, like the criminal or the victim, because you might think that there's a crime, but if the victim, so-called victim, thinks it's OK, then maybe it's not a crime, right? Uh, maybe two people, maybe you see somebody hit somebody, but maybe they're just boxing or something. They're playing a sport and you know, hitting is kind of OK, but the consensual activity. So. Um, and then there are other other cases where you see something where the victim's not happy, but maybe it was an accident. Maybe the, the perpetrator was not intending to hit somebody, but it, they tripped or maybe the wind blew them into something. So you really have to really know what's going on in people's heads to fully understand the ethical situation. Um, so the desert island or deserted island situation is one in which I think we can. Um, these concepts seem very sort of simple and maybe easy to, to parse out. Um, but I, I, you know, it does a deserted island is not just different in, in the quantity of people, uh, but also I think it's different in kind from a large society that's filled with lots of people. And so uh, what kind of challenges do you think emerge when you bring these ideas into a larger society? Can those be overcome? Uh, one example that comes to mind is I have a friend who just asked me about it was the free rider question uh, mm -hmm. that you know happens to people who want to sort of don't want to pay for things, but can get some benefit from from society organizing in a sort of a voluntary basis. Um, uh, you know, th th those kinds of things. Yeah, it's perfectly fair to ask whether anarcho-capitalism could only work in a small society. Um, but I think the economic and historical analysis leads to the opposite conclusion. You know, the more capitalist the society, the more it's able to function at a large scale. You know, central planning works fine for small groups, <clears throat> for example, like a family or maybe even a small village. You can have some leader who's kind of controlling everything that's going on. Uh, but collectivism quickly leads to serious problems as population size increases. Um, that's why you see, you know, massive failures when it's tried on a countrywide scale with like the USSR or Venezuela or whatever. Um, and, you know, part of this is like the information problem you know, where government agents just don't have enough information or ability to direct affairs of huge numbers of people. Uh, but part of it's an incentive problem uh, where if you design a social system Assuming that millions of people are going to act solely for the benefit of society, you're in for some rather unpleasant surprises about human nature. Um, so yeah, I think 
uh, from everything I've seen, anarcho-capitalism is very scalable. Uh, will it scale to hundreds of billions of people? I don't know, but I think it would probably work very well at a country level and maybe even the whole world. Good. You know, you mentioned the information problem, and some of these are terms that if, if you're interested in these subjects, you kind of already kind of know immediately. And you gave kind of a, a short definition, but um, um, one um, economist who talked about this a lot was Hayek, Friedrich Hayek, yeah. who um, he sort of saw it as, I think, probably the central problem with this idea that we should have uh, really smart people uh, organizing the economy and society. Um, yeah. But I, I was recently reading... Um, the, uh, the Michael Malice uh, edited Anarchist Handbook. And uh, he, yeah, it's a great book. And he includes a lot of anarcho-communists, uh, including, and I'm, I'm probably gonna pronounce his name wrong, but Mikhail Bakunin, um, who was a, an opponent of Marx because he uh, believed ultimately in the end goal, but he was like, he can't get there with the state. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and so I, I think one, one of the points that he makes was, um, uh, the, the state being this minority, even if it were a thousand times elected by universal suffrage and controlled in its acts by popular institutions, unless it were endowed with the omniscience, omnipresence, and the omnipotence which the theologians attribute to God, it is impossible that it could know and foresee the needs or satisfy with an even justice the most legitimate and pressing interest in the world. There will always be discontented people because there will always be some who are sacrificed. And so in my, in my notes, I wrote a communist preceding Hayek. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but it was just so funny how some of these folks who are arguing with Marx, who were really on his side in a way, said, you're, you don't get it. It's, it doesn't work. You can't have a state that can know all the things that are necessary to know uh, for an economy to, to, to function smoothly. And that is the kind of surprising thing about, about a free market economy as, uh, um, um, uh, oh gosh, um, as Adam Smith wrote, talked about the invisible hand, that when you sort of have all these people sort of freely pursuing their own ends, they produce things that other people want. They respond to those kind of minute uh, changes that sort of happen on the ground level. Okay, uh, the, I'm selling more apples. I need to I need to get more apples, you know. And mm -hmm. but to have the state manage all those things is always I mean, always leads in, in, to, to failure. Um, uh, there was a, a stat, and I wish I could remember it exactly what it was, but it had to do with the fact that the majority of produce that was consumed in the, in the Soviet Union was produced on the small parts of uh, private patches of land that the government <laughs> allowed uh, yeah, yeah. people, that, the farmers to own. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that knowledge problem or the information problem is a, is a huge issue. And so I think that that's one thing that, that stands out to me that I think a lot of people miss when you talk about capitalism, people think about greed. And in one sense, you know, we, talk, we are talking about self-interest, that the guy who makes the apples is trying to make money. So he wants to sell a lot of apples. But, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, there are people who want to buy apples and, <laughs> and they're having them. And so that's not necessarily greed, even though it is, even though you have two people acting in their own self-interest, the guy who wants the apples, the guy who wants to sell the apples. Um, and so, uh, as you kind of discussed earlier, it's not so much about, um, you know, creating a system to get the government out of the way so that we can all be greedy. It's about trying to create the system that's going to have the most amount of freedom, the most amount of prosperity, the least amount of kids starving in the, on the, in the streets. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, whether you like it or not, um, trying to completely take over the economy and the lives of people to make sure that everything is fair and equitable isn't the way to do it. It doesn't work. And so it's one of those things that you almost have to, you know, let go and let God or let the invisible hand uh, of the market and just and, and that so surprisingly works better 
than trying to micromanage everything. Definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very counterintuitive. And that's one of the things I like so much about economics is you can really start to understand the way things work uh, you know, at a societal level when people are cooperating and good things are happening that we just don't understand it with our limited you know, human perspective. Um, and I was also surprised, like you were, about uh, when I was reading through the Anarchist Handbook about how close some of the anarcho-communists came to libertarian ideas. And they were all talking about liberty and how people working together is great. And they all just had like one or two little things that they, mistakes that they made that led them astray. Um, but yeah, there were definitely some, some great thinkers who were very close back then. Yeah, I think one of the, another point that was sort of similar, um, similarly surprising from, from some of the anarcho-communists that, that stuck with me was that they, they were sort of saying, well, you know, of course, um, a, of course the market works poorly now, it's because the government interferes with it. If you get the government out of the way, out of the way then the market would work more equitably. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> Maybe not as equitably as they'd like it to because they're still going to be rich people. Right. Um, but, you know, ultimately that, that's still a correct assessment. Um, at least, at least in my opinion. Um, so, um, you've written um, a little on your website about the process of creating and marketing this book, and I thought that was really fascinating that you provided that data. Um, and it really seems like you've been successful not just at writing an excellent book with great content, but in getting it out there. And that is, I think, the toughest part for a lot of you know artists and authors in this day and age because you don't just have to be somebody who can write a good book; you have to be somebody who knows how to market it. And mm -hmm. so. Uh, for someone like me and friends of mine who I know have struggled to sort of get find that audience, um, I, I'm curious, um, you know, how did you bridge that gap? Yeah, um, Michael Malice actually told me that being a successful author is mostly about marketing. Uh, in my case, I meant interviews with, on some relatively popular libertarian podcasts. Um, but if you have a lot of money, you can just spend it on ads or airtime or buying tweets from influencers, things like that. Uh, if you're on a budget though, you kind of just need to network your way to those people or platforms or borrow somebody's platform if you can. Um, you know, so find somebody with a big audience or find someone who knows them, that you can get an introduction. You know, a single mention from one of the uh, stars of the movement can make or break a book's profitability. Um, <clears throat> but I think for people who are planning to become full-time authors, you really need to build your own platform. Uh, so you need, build a following on various social media outlets and maybe even your own email distribution list. And so you might end up spending just as much time like uh, online socializing and building a following as you do writing and editing your book. Yeah, I think that's tough for a lot of people, though. It's, it's very, you know, it, it's very different skill sets, right? It is, yeah. And building a, 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 you know, a base of, of supporters is very different than writing a book. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, um, I, I'm also curious about um, kind of next steps. Is this something that was just like something you wanted to check off your box? You know, sometimes I'll think about things that I'd like to do in my life. And I thought, it'd be cool to do this once or this, you know what I mean? Or or do you have like future plans? And, and one thing that occurred to me is, um, as I read this book, for the most part, like up until a certain point, I was seriously considering giving it to my nine-year-old daughter. Um, who loves like the Tuttle Twins and some some of these other interesting? Yeah, yeah. Um, she, she's reading a, a well. We're listening to an audio book right now on repeat. Uh, that's about like the, the the horrors of the Soviet Union, but for a, a child. And the, oh, yeah, kid friendly uh, Gulag Archipelago. 
kind of um it's called a breaking stalin's nose and it's about a kid who uh accidentally breaks the nose off of a stalin statue uh -huh. the day after his uh father who is a um uh like an interrogator for the government gets arrested and so it's basically his like sort of coming to terms is kind of waking up to the reality of what the Soviet Union was and based which in opposition to what he'd been told. Anyway, she loves the book. You can't stop yeah. listening. And um, also really likes the Tuttle Twins. Um, but there were some things in the book that was like, I thought, man, this is so close. I can almost give this to my nine year old. But there's a few little things that are just a little adult. And uh, that was one thing that I would wondered is, is if, you know, moving forward, that be something you'd consider doing is. Uh, simplifying a book that's already very simple that I, I mean, I literally thought of giving it to my nine-year-old um, to uh, maybe make it a little more even kid-friendly. Yeah, uh, actually, I've not thought about it, uh, but I, I would love to see something like that. Um, so if anyone listening wants to, is interested in making a kid's version or something like that, I'd be happy to work with them. All right. Well, so that aside, though, are there any other thoughts that you've had about uh, other projects in this vein, doing some more writing? Because like I said, this was really, I mean, really good. And, and I don't just mean like really good, like, you know, the idea is really good, but it was just very, um, I mean, very easy to read, listen to, very persuasive. Um, I really got the ideas. And so I, I'd be interested in, in seeing more from you. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I would love to. Um, but as you probably know, writing is a big time sink, so you've got to really find a way to fit in your schedule. Uh, writing this one took four years, so uh, I, I, I admit I have not found something that I've been like, okay, I'm gonna, I got to sit down and write for four years and get this off my chest. But I, you know, it could happen. It certainly could. I've got a few ideas. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I would love to see if, you know, what else comes out. I'll set this I'm trying to remember on your website, do you have a, a mailing list? I uh, know, but people can contact me there if they okay. have any questions or comments. Yeah. I was going to say, I'd like to be able to be in the know when, when something comes out. Um, well, I, I don't want to, you know, keep you too much longer. We can talk as much as you want to, but um, I'm kind of working through making sure that at least the, the basic questions that I wanted to get answered. And uh, the last one that I had on here that I at least want to make sure we cover would be, uh, would America be a better society if we embraced anarcho-capitalism? And secondly, uh, because that, that, that might be an easy question, but the more difficult question is, what are the steps to getting there from here? Okay. Yeah, I think they're both maybe hard questions. You know, is it, would it be better? Again, it's a matter of opinion. America would be wealthier. Um, there'd be less conflict. But there might be some things that people don't like about anarchist America. You know, there would be even more wealthy wealth disparity, uh, not because there's poverty, but because as the poor get twice as rich, the rich get three times as rich or something like that. Uh, seems like a win-win to me, but not everyone would agree. Um, also, if you like the idea of dropping bombs on foreigners, you're probably going to be disappointed by anarchist America. Uh, the non-aggression would apply to everyone, you know, even if they live somewhere else, speak a different language, etc. Um, and again, you know, an ANCAP society would probably seem worse to government agents. You know, they'd have to go find real jobs. Um, but how, how would we get there if we think it's good or many of us think it's good? Uh, I think part of it's what Michael Humor advocates. You build private alternatives to government and eventually the private sector takes over more and more of the government's doing. Uh, and hopefully you get to a point where it's totally irrelevant. Like it doesn't even matter if the government's as a post office because everyone's using FedEx or UPS or whatever. Uh, part of it, though, is probably education as well. You know, if everyone believes that it's government's a necessary evil, then it'll probably be perpetuated. Um, 
But if people start to realize that government's an unnecessary evil, then private alternatives are you know, going to look more attractive. And once they're ready to take over, people can start peacefully switching from the government uh, options to the, the private options. Um, but I think this is something that probably happened at a small scale at first. You know, at a state level, you've got things like the Free State Project in New Hampshire, where you know, they're making a lot of changes to uh, their own local laws and how things work there. At a city level, you've got examples like uh, Sandy Springs, Georgia, uh, where the city privatized almost every service that it renders. And uh, this kind of experimentation will likely lead to good results for the local areas. Um, so, you know, I think in the case of Sandy Springs, uh, the town was saving maybe $10 million every year. Uh, so it's lower taxes, which can be more attractive to people. Um, you know, and eventually people and companies will migrate to these areas. So they're going to move towards capitalism, and that will induce competition with other areas that either forces them to be more capitalistic or they're just going to kind of wither as people move. Um, and actually now with people able to, more and more people able to work remotely, I've, we've already seen this happening. You know, people moving to places with lower taxes, fewer like regulations, and I'm pretty hopeful that this trend is going to continue. And eventually we'll even have a few anarcho-capitalist territories to live in. Uh, maybe not anytime soon, but hopefully in my lifetime. Uh, you know, just imagine living on land that you actually own instead of paying rent in the form of property taxes every year or, you know, or, you know, getting to keep the money you earn from your job instead of being a part-time slave for the IRS, I think. I think people will find that, if not uh, philosophically appealing, uh, it'll uh, appeal to their financial self-interest and we'll start to see more and more progress over time. So when you talk about building um, alternatives, a word that comes to my mind is... Uh, and I always pronounce it agorism, but, but I've heard other people pronounce it differently. But this idea that you sort of look for ways to kind of disconnect a little bit from, um, you know, from the system as it is, um, and including like, you know, starving the beast by, <laughs> by, by figuring out ways to, uh, not, not, I don't want to say avoid paying taxes because that sounds like tax avoidance, yeah. but it's more about not using that, that sort of system, right? Right. And this kind of, I think, really hit home for me. It's something I've been thinking about, but it really hit home for me um, today um, as there was all this news about uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, Trudeau, uh, who has struggled to know how to deal with this trucker situation, <laughs> uh, which which is, you know, I, I have the same issue with them that I had with the BLM protests, which is I'm sympathetic with your aim, but you can't, like, in, you know, interfere with the lives of civilians because they're, you're not going to get them on your side. But the, the aim is, is a good one. And basically, uh, the way that they've, the Canadian government's decided to respond to it is to declare an emergency and say, uh, we, we demand that any banks that uh, are in any way uh, helping these people or giving them money or the private banks of, of individuals who are participating in these protests, uh, go ahead and shut them out and mm -hmm. we'll back you up. And then uh, if, you're, uh, if we send a tow truck company to pick up a truck and the tow truck company refuses to do it, you're also uh, going to be arrested. And so we see how these kind of systems of, of, of doing things, particularly the banking system, um, can be so easily manipulated and co-opted by government. And it kind of makes you think like, maybe I want to not be as connected to this. Um, I mean, do, do you feel like that's part of the solution? I mean, agorism is, not, is a little different because it seems, it's almost like a little house in the prairie kind of like return <laughs> to, you know, homesteading type thing is usually what it's connected with. Uh, whereas I think what we're talking about is trying to figure out how as a society we move in that direction. 
Um, but is, is there any benefit to people kind of just checking out a little bit and then those people starting to connect more with each other outside of the system? Yeah, I think you're right. I think the goal of agorism, as far as I know, is you want to disconnect from the government without disconnecting from society. So are there alternative ways to transfer wealth and money that where people can make these transactions and support people that they care about uh, without exposing themselves to the force of government, where the government's just going to come in and uh, ruin things? Um, so I don't think, I mean, I'm sure some agorists want to be totally off the grid and independent of society because they don't want any chance the government will interfere. Um, but from what I've seen, uh, the majority of agorists want to find solutions that keep us moving uh, forward. So life gets better and better, better and better technology, and just give people better options to live the life, their lives the way they're living them now. So that could be money and banking, um, but it could be communication or any, any other area of their lives. Uh, you would, um, I don't want to keep going because I feel like we're, we kind of keep wrapping up and then you'll say something I think is interesting and I'll, I'll have a note or something. <laughs> um, but a little bit earlier, you, you talked about um, how we've become kind of obsessed with wealth disparity and how we're really concerned about that as, as an indicator. Um, and it's, I, I've wondered why that is such a concern as well. Um, I mean, why would we be concerned about the fact that the rich are getting richer if the poor aren't getting poorer? Um, I mean, if, 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 the, if overall we can look at it and say, well, the poor are in a better situation, look at all these these things, that these advances we've made. But, you know, we're going to have to deal with the fact that there are some rich people getting a little bit richer. Um, I mean, is, is that an ethical concern or is that envy? Like what? I, I don't really care if, if somebody richer than me gets richer <laughs> as long as I'm not getting poor. Like, I don't care. Um, yeah. So, I mean, what do, you, what do you think motivates that? Yeah, I think you're a little bit more logical than a typical person. I'm not a psychologist, but I do think it's a lot of emotion, you know, driven reactions to things. Um, and people just don't understand or realize where we're coming from. You know, I think of stories... I've heard stories about my grandparents who were immigrants to America, and you know, for Christmas, my grandmother said she got an orange. That was her that was her Christmas gift, right? And she would peel the skin off the orange into shapes of dolls or animals, and then play with the, the peel. And that was her toys for you know, the next couple of months. Um, it was like it was like and, a Kinder egg. It had the toy and the food combined. Yeah, exactly. For for the extremely poor immigrants in America, and nowadays people are like, well. You're, you're poor if you only have two car, you only have one car right <laughs> and instead of two cars or three cars or whatever so i think people many people don't have perspective and many people also let themselves be taken up by these kind of uh, more base emotions you know these um less thoughtful reactions yeah i i'd found a i think a like a tweet or a facebook post i read a few years ago which i think sounds crude and simplistic but I, I was saying, you know, you know how advanced we are as a society. Our poor have an obesity problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so. That's a very good point. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So I, I really appreciate you being here. I, I, I kind of want to say that um, my this podcast that I do is is mostly theological. So I, I'm, I'm a Christian theologian, but I'm I'm interested in the subject. I've written about it a little bit, and it really I think connects in a lot of ways with biblical theology. Uh, that you know, if people or listen or, or buy the books, my books or whatever, have some idea about how what, how that works. But I, I do want to say that I, I don't see, um, uh, you know, the moving toward a more libertarian society as a cure-all or anything like that. I, I still have this, you know, kind of broad framework where I see, uh, you know, the return of Christ is the most important <laughs> thing that's going to change the world. But I still think 
um, you know, do, do we not want to build a society that's more free, that's more prosperous, um, where people are in a better position than they were before? And, and, and I think that that should be that should be obvious if that's something that we can do. Um, you know, I think that, that that's we should be motivated to move in that direction. So I appreciate the fact that you have uh, done all this work, uh, really for me, four years of work, uh, at the very least, to uh, get this information out here and to argue persuasively, because I think it's something that people of really a lot of different perspectives could benefit from, regardless of whether they're religious or secular or, or what kind of religious views they have. Um, so I thank you for that, and I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. It's been fun and, and, and real quick, um, as far as people finding 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 you online or finding the book, um, you do have a website, chrisboer.com, right? K-R-I-S-B-O-R-E-R. Um, and then um, where else could people find find out about you? Uh, that's about it. I'm not super big into social media. <laughs> but okay. feel free to contact me on my website. I'm happy to chat via email or something. I did I did see that you have a Goodreads account, which which I do as well, and I'll go ahead and follow you on that. And it looked like it was pointing to Twitter, but I don't know if you're if you're an active user or not. Uh, I think I've made one tweet in my life. Uh, hopefully it's a good one if people want to check it out. Yeah, it looks like it was from 2018. Yeah, that, that's really it. It's a video. Um, but I, can't I think I, I, was give, I was giving a talk on uh, artificial intelligence at the Twitter headquarters, and I felt like if I'm at Twitter's headquarters, I should probably make a tweet while I'm here. So I did a little. It's it's interesting that you know uh, that you're interested in artificial intelligence, and now you're writing about politics. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, uh, based on, anyway. It was a dumb joke about the artificial intelligence of politicians. The, um, okay, so uh, thank you again for your time. Um, people really need to check out the book, The Ethics of Anarcho-Capitalism, either the book or the audio book. Uh, get a hold of it, and that's about it. It's been thank great speaking with you. Thanks.